hello. Um, good morning. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Life Church. And um, as we've been doing in this series of Lent, I'm going to ask you to watch this quick video. Well, you don't know it yet, but you're in for a treat today, what I call a double whammy. Double whammy meaning that we have two preachers here today, and no, you're not going to be here for four hours until the late afternoon, but I'm here with my friends, uh, Kelly Paget, who um, actually we had worked together uh, previously on staff at a church in Virginia, and um, of course since then have gone our different ways, and Kelly is a missionary in the Philippines, and he is also the founder and pastor of Reach Philippines, which he's going to share a little bit more in this message today that we've um, not planned actually with this series, but it so happened to be that this week we're going to be talking about something that really intertwines both of our um, points for you today. So we'll welcome Kelly in just a moment. But um, I want to start off today's message um, with a sports analogy, knowing that I am, um, I love sports, I love athletics, and I know many of you do not. Um, and that's okay. So we're going to take a little bit of a poll here, and this will tie into things in just a couple minutes. But I'm going to ask you, if you had to pick, what is your favorite sports championship? Knowing we're in like March Madness season, I don't know if your bracket is totally fried or not, most people's are, but what is your favorite sports championship if you had to choose? Those of you guys online, you can write in the chat um, what your answer is. Um, March Madness, is it the World Series, Stanley Cup, NASCAR, I don't understand you guys, but well, car going around track, 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 right? Round and around and around. Um, Super Bowl, or if you really just don't care. So how many are March Madness out of those, if you had to pick? Hey, just a couple. World Series? Yeah, World Series. How about Stanley Cup? Hockey? Yeah, hockey. Yeah, I like hockey. Uh, NASCAR, if you're honest. Okay, NASCAR, that's good. Super Bowl? Super Bowl? Okay, you have to choose that. And then just blunt honesty here, I don't care. Yeah! The total I don't care people have it. So I'll have to check online, see if you guys join in with that. And, and when thinking about sports, um, you know there's like basically two types of sports fans, right? There's two types. The first time I think was on display in February at the Super Bowl or the Super Bowl time, um, when all of a sudden I couldn't help it, especially um, you know, living in this region of central Pennsylvania, I would be walking around and I saw lots of new shiny Eagles gear, hats and shirts and all kinds of things. And I also saw, believe it or not, I saw some people, some of you guys, I'd raise your hand like I don't care people. 
Some of you guys had parties. You went to the game to celebrate and to see and to watch, and you hadn't watched football all season, but you did watch that game, right? And, and the thing is that that happens a lot. When, you're, when the home team is winning, um, the popularity rises, the ticket prices also go up, believe it or not, and, and fans kind of like come out of the woodwork, don't they? All of a sudden, the guy at work next to you, are like, you didn't even know that he watched the thing, right? And all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the thing and watch that game tomorrow night. And, and, and there's a name for this in sports. And what is that name? You all know it. We call them what? Fairweather fans. The Fairweather fans. They're the ones that, that when the team is losing... You know, ah, look around, we're kind of absent there. But when they're winning, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Now, I want you to contrast that with another group of fans that I know that you know, that, that have been cheering the losing team for years, and you know these people. They, they have season tickets for like the last 20 years, even though their football team has not won a single game, or their baseball team, and they never miss a game. The weather can be absolutely horrible, and they will sit there in the rain, the snow, the sleet, the hail, whatever's coming down from the sky, and they will watch that game and be a part of it. And, and there's a name for those people too. And what is that? What do we call them? The diehard fans. The diehard fans. This is a Phillies fan. Believe it or not, there are diehard Phillies fans. Didn't know there were. But, um, but the Fairweather fans come out when a team is winning and games are fun, but the diehard fans are there no matter what. Are there no matter what. And so during Lent, we've been in this series that we've called Eyewitness. Uh, we've been looking at the last days of Jesus through the eyewitnesses that were there, what they did with Jesus, how they encountered Jesus, who they saw Jesus as. And today, I'm going to talk briefly about not one or two, but several people, several people that I think play one of the most important roles in Jesus's ministry. They're kind of behind the scenes a lot of the time. Maybe you yourself are kind of a behind the scenes minister in some way. You like to set up things before anybody gets there or cook and provide things or clean up things. And you don't want to be in the spotlight necessarily. But this group of people, they were there at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. They followed Jesus through the Galilee to Jerusalem. They were at the crucifixion and we're even told they were there after. These are the women who surrounded Jesus. The women. The women. They're a prominent role in the gospel story. And actually, each of the four gospels talks about them. Each of the four gospels, while they tell the story differently, there's one unmistakable reality, and that's the fact that the women were always by Jesus' side no matter what. And so I'm going to tell the bit of the story here. Look at the story of the crucifixion from Mark's gospel today. This is also in your worship guide, too. If you want to follow along or take that home, read it later. And, and we're going to read this, this version of the story from Mark, from Mark 15. And as we read this today, I want you to pay attention to how Mark talks about the women. Okay, so Mark 15, starting in verse 33. So at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Labasagakani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. 
Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah take, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So this is a dramatic story of Jesus' last moments. But you see, even in the midst of the telling of this, Mark chooses to note something specific at the end. In verses 40 to 41, he goes out of his way, not just to note the women, but to name them. To name them. This is a big deal. Big deal, especially in any kind of ancient writings, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, these are the diehard disciples that he's naming here. And the thing is, in ancient times, the stories of women go mainly untold. We really only have stories from the perspective of men because those were the ones writing. We have very little that tell us about women. Um, and so women actually at this time were deemed to be untrustworthy. That's what they would tell about us. They, they, um, the ancient rabbis... And they actually had a saying to saying that the testimony of a woman is always false. And, and so nobody would trust the witness of a woman. Why would Mark include that if he were making this up? Some people think that the Gospels are just made up stories. Why would he include that if that was kind of the tenor of the time? But most of the time in the Gospels, if they're mentioned, they're just referred to as women, as the women. But here, here he specifically goes out of the way to go mention them by name, to go out of his way and list their names. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the, the mother of, of Joseph, another, the Mary, the mother of James, or the wife of Cleopas, and another woman, Salome. By the way, the name Mary, um, it's said that there were about like probably half the women of the, that time were named Mary, by the way. So if you're like, why are there so many Marys? Well, that's why. Every, half the people were named Mary. But it's almost like Mark wants us to know there's something unique about these women. Something unique and especially important. They weren't just there at the crucifixion. They were there since the beginning. They were the diehard disciples. They were some of the first to follow Jesus. We're told that the women financially supported Jesus. They had a little bit of side business going, right? A little side gig there to try to support Jesus' ministry. Because, of course, he's going through the land and teaching. They supported Jesus in the Galilee. They followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. They were with him when he was arrested, when he was suffering. And then we see them at the cross. They were there after he died. Even after Joseph took the body. Matthew goes on from his perspective and tells us in verse 61, chapter 27. He says, Mary Magdalene. And the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Think about that. After Jesus' burial. You know, I can't get that image out of my head. When, when everybody else left, here were the women still with Jesus. And I think that's important to point out because we need to also contrast this with another group in the story. The men. The men. So what do you recall from the rest of the eyewitnesses that we've walked through? So, so we had Peter and Judas 
you know, what did they do? They denied him. They left him. They kind of betrayed him. Um, the disciples, what did they do? Psh, bolted. We find them behind closed doors, not just closed doors, but locked doors, scared for their lives. You know, and, and I'm not overplaying this, but, but I think the contrast here matters. And I think that's what Mark is trying to get to here. He's presenting that. He's presenting a picture of a faith that doesn't give up on people, that perseveres through pain, that hopes, that prays, and waits. And of course, Jesus had at one time been very popular as he was traveling through the Galilee. But eventually, Jesus' teachings, if you follow them through the Gospels, they get harder. They're not as easy. He's not providing as many things and miracles that are going on. His teachings get harder. He stops healing on demand. And as the road gets harder in the story, the crowd gets sparser and sparser. But we're told that the women stayed. The women stayed. And, and that's, this is commitment here that doesn't waver on circumstance or cost or how hard something is. The men were the fair-weather followers, but the women were the diehard disciples. A total flip of what anyone would have expected at the time. And so I started to think about what does this mean for us? What is the distinction between a fair-weather follower and a die-hard follower? And of course, it's not just in sports or in Phillies fans or Eagles or Steelers or that kind of stuff. I think it's the women offer us a picture of faith that sits together through the darkness. They're, they're, the latter sits together through the darkness. The die-hard sits together through the darkness. And I think that we need people to sit with us through the darkness. We need to sit with each other through the darkness when we're not sure what God is doing and where God is going, when it's difficult and uncomfortable through, with friendships, with marriages, not just living the for better part of our vows, but in crisis moments and for worse, when it's hard to love, uh, to, to get out of the habit of trying to fix people all the time. And you know, I do the, that all the time. I try to fix the situation and fix people. We, we tend to try to gravitate towards that. But instead of trying to fix people, what about just being with people? Being with in the darkness. You know, I think about that picture of faith sitting together through the darkness, even for the big C church, right? The, through the church transition here that I know took place during COVID, a very hard time. There, there are times when we don't agree or we're busy or it's easier to walk away. And I think it's also when it comes to our faith. We hit seasons when it's so much easier to bow out. And, and this isn't being said to beat anybody up, but there's a pull in all of us to be fair weather, to walk away when things get hard or difficult, when we don't feel the benefits of faith or faith is no longer exciting. But the women give us a different picture. The women show us that the unlikely ones are the ones that stick it out. They watch and wait and hope and pray. One of my favorite Yogi Berra sayings, if you like some of the funny things that he has, has penned, um, he says, it's easy to follow when it's easy. It's hard to follow when it's hard. Isn't that the truth, right? But what do we do with those moments? Do we bail out? Or like the women, do we hang in? And here what's cool is that enduring the darkness together, these women were later told that they become the very first witnesses of the resurrection. What would it look like to have a faith 
that sits together through the darkness. That staying during times of darkness often means that we also get the front row seat to something new. And speaking of walking through the darkness, I'm going to invite my friend Kelly to come up and to share a little bit about his experience of that and specifically working with women in those times of darkness and strife. And, and he's going to share a little bit to piggyback off here. Ready? Are you ready for that? I'm so ready. Okay. Thank you, Good. Chris. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I kind of want to, before I get into what, what I do, just I want to take you back for a moment and sort of continue fleshing out what Pastor Chris was talking about. I, I think it's, it's a privilege that we have. We, we love to talk about privilege anyway in this day and age uh, for whatever reason. It's a privilege that we have to look back and discuss the difficulties that people had. We talk about uh, the difficulties of slavery generations ago. We talk about the inequalities between men and women that were so distinct at that time. And we have the privilege because even though there may be issues today, it's not near as bad as it was here. But in other parts of the world, this, these inequalities that we're talking about still exist. And, and they're on full display if we look for them. The problem is we don't really look for those things. But, but go back for a moment to these women that, that were there. Literally, the function of a woman at that time was to produce children. If you could not produce children, you were of no value whatsoever. None. Even less than, than cattle. So that's why women's testimonies meant nothing. They meant nothing outside of what they could produce to keep the species moving forward. So imagine, if you will, that a rabbi appears on the scene, performing miracles, validating his, his status before God, and instead of marginalizing the women that the rest of the rabbis did, the rest of the priests and the holy people of the day, the church of the day, he embraces them. He calls them by name. He brings them in close to himself. He allows them to walk with him, beside him, to minister alongside him. And then he's gone. I mean, where else would you go? For the first time in your life, somebody recognized you for more than what you could do and what your body could produce. For the first time in your life, you meant something to a man who wanted nothing from you in return but your relationship. Who you were as a human being. Can you imagine the depths of despair that was in their heart and in their mind as they sat looking at that stone in front of the cold stone tomb, wondering, will ever, anyone ever see me like this again? Will anyone ever value me again? Even the men that, that we served with, we ministered with, have run away and they're locked behind closed doors, as Pastor Chris tells us. Here we are yet alone again. We have no purpose. We, we mean nothing. We're valued for nothing. Until the day that they come back and the stone is rolled away and the Lord is gone and the angel announces to them first, guess what? The, the, the one who saw you, who really saw you, is back. And it's not over. It's just the beginning. What an incredible moment of joy that must have produced in their heart. 
I, I want to tell you that story because I'm going to tell you a few stories from the Philippines. I um, just briefly, I'm going to, we're going to talk more after the service. We're going to have a meeting. I know there's people that have signed up for it, but frankly, I don't care who comes. <laughs> I'd love for you to stop by so I can tell you more about what we do. But the long and the short of it is, in 2018, I think it was, I went to the Philippines for the first time. All right, I was visiting a friend who's a lifelong missionary there. He was one of my roommates in college. He invited me to come take a look at their ministry. Actually, believe it or not, he was setting me up on a long-distance date with a woman who would become my wife. 7,500-mile blind date. Get some of that. <laughs> you know? So I don't know what your dating story is, but I'm telling you, that's got to beat it. I don't care what you say. Look, she even makes me look good. That's good. If you could do that, you're a champ. So... Our first date is me, her mom, and her sister because she's very traditional and that's the way it was. So I've got this four-person date. So we're walking down the street in Manila. I'm, I, I have longer legs than them even though it doesn't look like it. Believe me, they're like this tall, like, the, like, like this tall. I'm not sure if they would be a sprout or a tater tot size, but they're like in that area, little people. So I'm walking ahead of them as I always do because I, I, I tend to walk fast. <laughs> like Again, I know I don't look like it, but I really do. So... What, what happens is three girls stop me. I, usually when I walk down the street in Manila, I'm like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Like people get out of my way and they like point up. They're like, what is that? You know? And so, but these three girls stop right in front of me and they look up at me and they're smiling and they're giggling and they, and they offer me a massage. Right? And I was like, no, thank you. I'm okay. And then they said, it doesn't have to be a massage. It can be anything you want. Whatever you want. We have a place. Take, we'll, we'll take you there. Uh, just come with us. We'll make you happy. Just, just please, you know, come with us. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want a massage. I don't want anything like that. And they, so they literally are looking at, in, in my eyes, they're laughing, they're smiling, but their eyes tell the truth. Their eyes are cold. Their eyes are dead. Their eyes are, 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 are broken, right? So I'm looking down in these girls' eyes and they're, they're begging me to take me and, and, ha and do whatever I want just so they could have a little bit of money to eat, Right? So instead, I said, I'll make a deal with you. How about I give you $20 each, which is a huge sum of money to them, and, and I just pray for you. Can I do that? And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? I said, I just want to pray for you, and I'll pay you to do it. So I prayed for them, and, and long story short, when I left the Philippines, I came home. God said to me, and by the way, God speaks to me like a 65-year-old hippie. He's like, man, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> I want you to do something in the Philippines, bro. And so I'm like, okay, Lord. Um, I was like, sure, I'll raise money because I'm a good American. That's what we do. I raise money and I'll find somebody who's actually doing something. I'll send it to them. I'll raise awareness. You know, I'll, have, I'll make a 5K or I will, you know, have a telethon. I'll do something good. And God's like, wow, that's really, really cool. No, here's what I want you to do. Sell all your stuff and go. When I started in, in, in ministry, God gave me two phrases that I actually painted on the walls in the youth room that I was the youth minister. We always use young people to sharpen our skills in ministry. I feel bad for them. <laughs> you know, say they, they get all the new people, and then it's like, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing now, so next, next person comes along. So anyway, be radically generous, be radically obedient. So I promised God to be radically obedient, so I sold all my stuff, and I left. I went to the Philippines. And what God said was, he said, Kel, I want, you to, I want you to go into the bars where the girls are trapped. They've been taken from their homes. Um, they've come seeking jobs, thinking they're going to be waitresses, and they end up getting uh, sold into the sex trade. 
They're forced to do whatever a man wants. They're, they're bought for a small sum of money for the night, and, and they have to do whatever he says. Um, then they're turned loose if they're lucky. If they're not, they just sit there and get nothing, um, which many of them do. So he said, I want you to go into the bars. I want you to make friends with these girls. I want you to see them. I want you to know them. And I want you to call them out. I want you to provide a safe place for them to go. I want you to bring them to my house where they can begin to heal and begin to, to explore who they are in my love and who I am. I want you to get them educated. I want you to help them to, to live their dreams. I want their kids to be safe. I want them to have a pathway to peace. I want them to reconcile with their families. And then I want them to be released, to begin working and bringing light to all the pockets of the Philippines, all the time reaching back and helping their sisters that come through the program. That's what I want you to do. And so that's what we did. We have two safe houses now. We have 22 people that are involved. We have 30 people waiting. That's partially why I'm here, is, is to hopefully get more people involved in helping us to rescue more girls. But more than that, I really want to encourage you today to begin to see people. Because believe it or not, we're surrounded by marginalized people. We're surrounded by women and by children, even some men, who are never seen. They don't exist. They're just there. And they need to know that the sovereign God of the universe, the creator, the, the one who sustains all things, not only cares about them, but knows them. And in knowing them, loves them. You see, we wouldn't have to have a million women and children in the sex trade in the Philippines if we didn't have millions of customers coming there every year. But we have millions of customers coming there every year because Western men, oftentimes, they don't care because we've allowed them not to care. We've given them space to, to, that there are people that mean nothing, that have, that have nothing, that serve no purpose but to serve them. Why is that? Because we as the church aren't placing value on people as we should. We aren't going through the community with seed of the, of the gospel falling out of our pockets. We aren't going into places ascribing the value of Christ to people as we should. Usually we just kind of gather up together and then go about our business. I'm telling you, we are called to see people, to know people. I'll tell you just one story. The first bar that I walked into, I walked up to the bar. I didn't know what to expect or what to do. I've been to bars. I'm Irish, right? I grew up Irish. I've been to plenty of bars, I assure you. But nothing quite like this. It's totally different. I, did, I was going in in the name of the Lord, which at first, I mean, I grew up very conservative Baptist. So as soon as I stopped at the door, I'm like, I, I, I'm not supposed to walk in here, <laughs> you know. And I walked in anyway, and I go up to the bar. I'm like, what am I doing? This really beautiful girl walks up next to me. She's fully made up, hair like down to her knees. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous. And she introduces herself. Her name is Talia. So we start talking. And Talia's like, wow, man, it's so good to meet you. And she starts asking me questions that she's trained to do and asks me, well, why don't you buy me a drink so we can talk? That's how she gets paid, partially, right? So I start talking to her. She had given me a fake name at first. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at her. She keeps getting closer 
and closer. Like at first, you know, and then it's like closer and closer till the next thing I know, she's right on my arm, you know. And then the next thing I know, she she grabs the inside of my arm and kind of like starts hugging my arm. I was like, boop, you know what I mean? Like, hold on. So I said, what's your, what's your name? She said, uh, I, I, I want to say it's Anastasia is what she told me. No, I said, what's your real name? She's like, why do you ask? I said, here's my ID. This is my real name. Who are you? Really? My name is Talia. Wow. Talia, do you have a family? I've got two kids and a boyfriend at home. Oh, okay. What are you doing here? We start talking. Talia, do you have any dreams? Do you have any hopes? What were you, what were you hoping to be when you were a young girl? Oh, man, I always wanted to be a teacher. Why are you here? So we start having this conversation. And Talia, for the first time, at the end of the, of the evening, she looks at me. She says, you're the first foreigner ever who ever cared to know anything about me than here to here. The first one ever. And I said, I may be the last one ever, but I will keep knowing you. And I'm going to keep coming to talk to you until you and I walk out of this place. She's one of a hundred. Really one of a million. My friends, we're about to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is something that we dance in, the power of the resurrection. But there are a lot of people that are sitting outside of the tomb wondering, does anybody know or care who they are? The story that you heard today, if you just look a little deeper and keep looking, you're going to see people who had no value until they met Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's all of us. So the real question is, who are we walking past on a daily basis whose name we need to know and who needs to know from us that they matter in the name of Christ. I've got lots of names of people in the Philippines that I can tell you about, and I want to after the service, but I really want you to start here. Because if we do, I won't have to be over there doing that at some point. Because we know that the battle is won, right? But we still got to fight. So I invite you all to join in what we're doing. Join us in the Philippines in fighting darkness Primarily by starting right here, partnering with your pastor, and go out and be the gospel. I'll thank you for it all the way from Cebu, Philippines, I promise you. And if you want to hear more about what we're doing, please come by and just check it out. You'll see our website where you can get all those things. But I appreciate you having, giving me the time today. We love you and we thank you. Let me pray.